So we are continuing to work through the gospel according to Mark, and we find ourselves in chapter 10. So if you're not there, the passage that Bill read is a really helpful complement, those two passages. Jesus will refer to those two texts um, in our passage in Mark 10. Um, so if you're not there yet, please turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10. And you can find that on page 845 if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, before we start to walk through this passage, um, I want to ask you a couple questions, get you thinking. What is marriage? Can you define it? Second question. What is it for? What is marriage for? What's the purpose of marriage? It's rhetorical at this point. (laughs) Um, Yes, procreation would be one purpose. So what is marriage? What is it for? Can you answer those questions? Whether you're married or not, whether you're young or old, Obviously, pretty important questions to be able to answer. So, um, sound booth, they're going to give me a a mic, and I'm going to walk around and just pick some random people and have you answer this on the spot. Just kidding. Um, Okay, now that everybody's, like, awake. All right, good. Um, So, we have seen in recent weeks how Jesus, as he is the king and he's bringing the kingdom of God, he is showing how the the values of the kingdom are squarely at odds with the values of the world. We've seen that a number of times as we've walked through. Um, And the disciples are having their world kind of completely upended. Um, We'll see more of that in chapter 10 because they were inclined to even view leadership like the world in terms of position and power, rather than the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you're going to follow me, that also impacts how you lead and serve. So we will see this again this morning in terms of marriage and divorce. It is going to fly in the face of the value system that our world so often espouses, um, and sometimes it It cuts against the grain of our own hearts as well. Um, So may the Lord give us grace to be open and receptive to what he has to say to us this morning in Mark chapter 10. So um, we're going to look at it in five points. Um, The first is the test here in verses 1 to 3. So take a look at Mark 10, 1 to 3 with me, and we'll dive in and study this text together. And he, Jesus, left there, which is Capernaum, if you look back at 9.33, we looked at that last week. And he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So in Jesus' day, I think it's helpful for us to know that Jewish law permitted divorce. Okay, the debate was not whether 
you could get divorced, but what were lawful reasons, lawful grounds for divorce? And there were two primary schools, okay? The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, okay? So Shammai took a strict interpretation, um, and so it had to be a grave violation of the marriage covenant, like adultery, to provide grounds for the dissolution of the marriage bond. The Hillel school, held to a more lax interpretation, and actually theirs was the more common view at the time. The Pharisees were fans of the Hillel school, okay? The lax interpretation. So even the most trivial offense, and maybe you've heard, you know, preachers quote this or seen it in the study Bible or something like that, even the most trivial offense like ruining the husband's dinner Seriously, there's, you can quote the Mishnah in this regard, okay? Could constitute grounds, and the Pharisees wanted to keep it that way. So Jesus will answer the Pharisees, but he ultimately kind of refuses to get embroiled into this whole Shammai Hillel debate. Um, he knows that this is not a genuine question that they're asking. The Pharisees simply want to test him. They want more ammunition to use against him, Okay? Now, remember, in the context of Mark's gospel, remember back to chapter 6, speaking truth to power on divorce got John the Baptist killed. So imagine, you can imagine how the Pharisees maybe hope that Jesus' answer on the same subject will get him in hot water with Herod and the powers that be. So they had their minds made up, the Pharisees, all the way back in chapter 3 when, remember, Jesus healed that man with a withered hand and he healed him on a Sabbath, which really, you know, upset the Pharisees. And in Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So they were already decided that they wanted to kill him. It was just a matter of how and when and getting enough evidence to pull it off. So rather than recognizing who Jesus is, bowing the knee to him as Lord and Savior. They are blind, and they think that they can sit in judgment on him. They've put him in the dock, and they're examining him as if that is their right and position. So Jesus responds to them first with a question. He answered them, what did Moses command you? Okay, so point number two now the concession, verses four to five. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So when the Pharisees replied to Jesus' question, when they say Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce, they're actually referring to an Old Testament text, okay? It's Deuteronomy 24, verses one to four. We'll have verse one up here on the screen. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and it goes on with some other, you know, stipulations of how this ought to be handled. So they cite this passage as endor endorsement of their view. And in line with the Hillel school of thought, some indecency was interpreted as 
you know, in some cases, very trivial reasons like ruining the meal or even simply preferring someone else, finding someone else preferable to your, your first wife. So by their reading, this text made divorce lawful, and it also made it lawful for husbands to divorce their wives on just about any grounds. But actually, that is not the intent of Deuteronomy 24. They're twisting it. They're misusing it. So Jesus is going to respond by going all the way back to Genesis, the original intention of God in the creation of marriage in the Garden of Eden. But before we look at verses six to nine here in Mark when Jesus goes back to the beginning, we should at least understand Deuteronomy 24 in its context. So the intention of that instruction in Deuteronomy 24 was actually to deter a husband from a knee-jerk reaction because he couldn't just kick her out of the house. Okay, he had to write her a formal certificate. It was also intended to make clear the freedom and right of the woman to remarry. Okay, the certificate literally read, you are free to marry any man. And so in that sense, it offered at least a degree of protection to her reputation by guarding her from rumors and stigma. So adultery, obviously, Old Testament times, in kind of the theocracy of Israel was punishable by death. So if the reason was never mentioned, it wasn't always carried out, um, but that was certainly in the law. So if the reason was never mentioned, you can imagine how the rumor mill could get going and if him sending her away was on account of something trivial, like burning his dinner, then she has proof that she wasn't guilty of something more significant. So bottom line, it was intended to provide some safeguarding of the woman's rights, the more vulnerable party. It was never intended to encourage divorce or condone divorce. So it was actually aimed at deterring hasty divorces, but it became, sadly, a pretext for divorce. Everybody know what a pretext is? We kind of hear that term here and there but maybe we don't realize what it means. So just in case there's any of you that don't know, let me just refresh your memory. A pretext is a reason given in justification of a course of action that is not the real reason. It's an excuse to cover up for the real reason. So Moshe doesn't like his wife. He doesn't like that, you know, after she's given birth to their six children, she isn't quite as, you know, sexually appealing as she used to be, and he gets increasingly dissatisfied and annoyed with every little thing that she does wrong in his eyes. And in his business travels as a merchant, he's got friendly with the sister of one of his buyers. And the next time he gets home, dinner's served, his favorite dish, and it's lukewarm and not nearly as good as times past. He's had enough. Deuteronomy 24. He's dismissive, he shuts her down, he writes a certificate, dismisses her. It's biblical. Can you imagine him saying it to her? It's biblical, it's lawful. See, Deuteronomy 24. When really the issue is, I found someone better. That's pretext. Or, I'm annoyed with you and you exist to make me happy in his selfish mind, and I'm not happy that you didn't perform up to my standards with my dinner, so out with you. 
So, okay, that might seem outlandish, you know, petty, silly, but before you dismiss his trivial dismissal, think about other pretexts that sadly happen in the church. Like a husband that uses 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 3, the wife should give to her husband his conjugal rights. She, he uses that like a club to justify and baptize his sexual selfishness. That's a pretext. Or like a husband that uses Ephesians 5 headship like a weapon to lord it over his wife in his selfish pride and manipulative control. That's a pretext. Or like a wife who uses request for prayer as justification to complain to her friend about all the ways her husband annoys her and gets on her nerves. Pretext. So Jesus doesn't like his truth being used as a pretext for sin. So Deuteronomy 24 was given as a concession on account of the fact that this is a fallen world and there's sin and hardness of heart. And so it was aimed at providing vulnerable women with needed protection. So it didn't sanction or condone or authorize divorce. It's a helpful quote by New Testament scholar James Edwards. Um, It should be up here. You do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. Peter, is that true? Is that, you can fact check this? Okay, great, Peter's um, instructor in flight safety. Um, And where's Jeff? Is he here too? What? He's out of town. town. Okay, there we go. Peter's word is good. Um, So, okay, so you do not fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. You will not be successful in war if you train by the rules for beating a retreat. The same is true of marriage and divorce. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. His opponents ask what is permissible. He points to what is commanded. Deuteronomy 24, he argues, is not a pretext for divorce, but an attempt to limit its worst consequences for women. The divine intention for marriage cannot be determined from a text about divorce. So, what is the divine intention for marriage? Well, point number three from the beginning, verses six to nine. So what Jesus is going to do is reframe the conversation from whether divorce is lawful to what is the original purpose of marriage. So he shows the real nature of marriage And as a result, the fact that it is not simply something you can discard if you're displeased. Okay, so verses six to nine. But from the beginning of creation, quote, this is Genesis 1.27 that Bill read, God made them male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus goes back and underneath the concession of Deuteronomy 24 
even past, back past the seventh commandment, you know, you shall not commit adultery, to the original intention and purpose of marriage. So Jesus has been all along in the Gospel of Mark and definitely in the latter half of the book, it's very clear. Um, what does it mean to follow him? King and cross, his identity and his mission. And when, especially when he gets to describing his mission, it has implications for what it means to follow him. So the discipleship ethics of the kingdom of God are becoming increasingly clear in Mark as Jesus progresses and heads towards Jerusalem. So marriage in his kingdom is not a flimsy thing that can be dissolved at the whim of a selfish husband with Deuteronomy 24 as a pretext. Marriage is a lifelong covenantal union established in the garden from the beginning by God himself. So let me quote James Edwards again. I'm going to quote him three times this morning. Here's the second one. The greatest difference between Jesus and the rabbis is this. By giving a husband principal control over his wife, the Jewish divorce policy made the man the lord of the marital relationship. According to Jesus, however, it's neither man nor woman who controls marriage, but rather God who is the lord of marriage. What God has joined together, let man not separate. So God made them male and female. Genesis 1.27. That's where marriage begins. And in our day and age, we must not assume the obvious implication here. We need to state it clearly. So Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, understands, declares, affirms that marriage is a God-designed, God-ordained union between one man and one woman. So those who claim to follow Jesus and attempt to justify their affirmation of same-sex unions, sometimes if you've read any of the literature, it's on the basis that Jesus never speaks about it, kind of an argument from silence. Well, he clearly reaffirms um, God's original design here in this text. Also, notice that when a man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife, they become one flesh. It's God who joins them together. This is not merely a horizontal contract. And so if God has united them, we as people dare not tear apart this divinely endorsed covenantal bond. So Jesus points to the origin, the intention of marriage. It's designed to be permanent. One flesh that's created when a man and woman marry, it's actually a new creation. Two become one. That's a new thing. That's a new creation. And they are now indivisible. This new ontological reality, nature of being, cannot be separated except by literal or metaphorical violence. So I actually called a friend yesterday who is divorced. And this person is clearly the victim of a divorce that was the result of wicked and persistent sin of her husband. 
So she had biblical grounds for divorce. I asked her what word she would use to describe divorce. She said, severing, shredding, ripping apart. And then she added, it's been like an amputation of my personhood. I actually asked my dear mom as well, words she would use. So over 25 years ago, my dad had an affair, ended up divorcing my mom. She said that she experienced a loss of identity. Who am I? Two, coming one, and then this violent destruction of that one. And now, who am I? Obviously, there was hurt, deep, deep pain. Experienced that personally, also for the children, other family members that are involved. So no wonder, right? Violence must be done to tear asunder the one flesh that's created when a man and woman join together in marriage. So Jesus' point is that marriage is by God's design. He made us male and female, He made marriage, and when a man leaves father and mother and holds fast to his wife, the two become one. This is not a merely human contract. It's God himself that joins them together. So the nature of marriage is central to understanding a Christian posture toward divorce, what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I am going to get to some qualifiers, right? And I certainly want to be sensitive to those who've been impacted by divorce, or even those who've sinned by wrongly divorcing a spouse. That's not the unforgivable sin, okay? Jesus can forgive any sin that's repented of, okay? So there's lots of qualifiers, way more than I'm gonna be able to share this morning, but the point is, Jesus' point. We need to make sure the emphasis of Jesus' point is the emphasis of our point this morning. And that's, he's saying, the permanency of marriage is central and vital. And it's all because of what marriage is. It is the God-ordained union of two becoming one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one tear asunder. Okay? So, fourth point, divorce and adultery, verses 10 to 12. And in the house, so after he's taught the crowds, Jesus retreats with the disciples into a house. And if you've been here with us in recent weeks, you know that whenever Jesus is with the disciples in the house, it tends to be discipleship instruction time, right? So again, this is what does it mean to follow me? Um, So he's teasing out some more of the implications for the disciples here in the house. And there, this would be new for them. This would be, you know, challenging to their worldview because they probably were in line, by and large, with the Hillel school, the lax interpretation. So in the house, the disciples asked him again. In fact, Matthew's parallel account, they respond to Jesus' words by saying, whoa, if that's the case, maybe it's better not to marry. So, They're sobered with Jesus' word here on the permanence. So in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Pharisees' view of Deuteronomy 24 and a permissive posture toward divorce meant that it was common for men to divorce their wives for like relatively trivial and certainly sinful, selfish reasons. Okay? And Jesus wanted his disciples to know the real consequences of such permissiveness. So we might read right past this. We don't realize it. But what Jesus says in verse 11 would have been shocking to the disciples. Okay, Because they, they were um, people of their time. Okay, So in rabbinic teaching, if a husband committed adultery, I mean, this, this is going to be offensive. Jesus calls it out here. If a husband committed adultery, it was considered to be committed against his wife's father or against the husband of the woman he had the affair with. Jesus rejects that and calls it what it is. Look at it. Look at verse 11 and look at verse 12. Do you see the two words that are added? Against her. Why, why is that added there? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. It's because Jesus gives dignity to that woman and recognizes the affront against her that his unfaithfulness is. And then Jesus goes on to speak of the moral agency and responsibility of the wife as well. So a woman divorcing her husband was very unlikely in Jewish culture, though Herodias was a notable exception if you were here with us back in chapter 6. But it was allowed in Roman culture. So first readers of Mark's gospel would understand that. Jesus is simply declaring that this dynamic works both ways. We're all personally responsible before God. So the point is, like, particularly for the wife in a culture like that, which is very different from our own, if a husband dismissed a woman like that, she became very vulnerable and would very likely be married again. So for him to boot her out under false pretense and um, for you know, selfish reasons was to essentially cause her to commit adultery because she'd get married to somebody else and this wasn't a real divorce. Everybody tracking? Okay. So, <clears throat> so the passage here in Mark's gospel is given without qualification or exception. And Jesus, again, like I mentioned, is driving home the original intention, the seriousness of the marriage covenant in the face of that ugly permissiveness that the Jewish leaders taught and that many Jewish husbands practiced. So there are other texts that are important to hold together with this text. For instance, when Matthews addresses these matters, you see what's often referred to as an exception clause related to sexual immorality. So Matthew 5 and 19, I think we'll have those up there, 532, everyone who divorces his life except on the ground of sexual immorality, which if it's you know, depending on the context, it can refer to sex with a prostitute or adultery, just related to the context, makes her commit adultery, and whoever divorces a divorced woman commits adultery. So he reaffirms the same thing that Mark says, or Mark 
um, records in his gospel, but adds this except on the ground of sexual immorality. Well, the point is, if this husband commits sexual immorality, then for them to divorce and her to marry someone else is not to cause her to commit sexual immorality because he, by his unfaithfulness, has broken that marriage bond. Same thing is stated in Matthew 19.9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Or if she commits adultery, she obviously already did commit adultery. So she doesn't, you know, become guilty of it in some sort of passive way. She's already committed it. So bottom line, it's never God's will for marriage bond to be broken Okay, if a man commits adultery, he's violated, broken the marriage bond. If a wife, same thing. It can sometimes be restored. There, we probably know some beautiful testimonies of, of God's redemptive work, right? Where there's costly forgiveness, much mercy and grace and genuine spirit wrought change and people restore this marriage after, you know, terrible betrayals. But there is a concession here made by God for the spouse who is betrayed. The other place in the New Testament where we have a release from the bond of marriage other than by death is in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And it's under kind of the banner of hard-hearted desertion, okay, by an unbeliever. So 1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So you can imagine people get married. One of the spouses becomes a Christian. The other one eventually just abandons, you know, just leaves. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You can let them go. You're no longer enslaved. You may, especially if they haven't remarried, you may want to stay single. In fact, that would be our counsel. Stay single, remain open, pray that the Lord might bring you back together. But you don't have to just keep grabbing and clawing because, again, you can't change their heart. You can't save them. If they decide to abandon the marriage, then that brother or sister is not enslaved. So, if that happens, the person who leaves in hard-hearted desertion is tearing apart what God has joined together. You're not doing that. The guilt is on that person. So there's lots of other kind of hard case scenarios that may fall under these two umbrellas, but we can't go into those nuances now. Um, let me say, though, Certainly in cases of physical sexual abuse and even more severe cases of verbal emotional abuse, the safety of the victimized party is paramount. And protecting any um, children, for instance, is of foremost concern. But Jesus' focus here is on believing and living in the light of the original design of marriage and realizing that every marriage union is formed by God and we dare not Treat that lightly, tear it apart, tear at it, or tear it apart. So last point, discipleship and marriage. I told you I was gonna quote this guy, James Edwards, three times. Here's the third one. So he provides a, a great summary here. 
the essential thrust of 10, 1 to 12 is, um, it is the inviolability of the marriage bond as intended and instituted by God. Jesus does not conceive of marriage on the grounds of its dissolution, but on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose by God. Human failure does not alter that purpose. The intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fail in marriage with debilitating guilt. Just hear these qualifiers. I think they're helpful. The question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. <laughs> I think there's some typos in here. Um, the answer to that question is assured in 328. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. There is, after all, no instance in Scripture of an individual seeking forgiveness and being denied it by God. Again, even a simple divorce is not the unforgivable sin. The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. In marriage, as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies, we will, seek, will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty? Remember the par parable of the soils? Or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship, even in marriage? Will we sunder the marriage union of two become one flesh? Or will we honor and nurture marriage as a gift and creation of God? So we dare not be permissive or minimalist in our orientation. Is it lawful? Instead, we ought to be maximalist because we want to protect the sanctity of marriage. In fact, you can, you can speak of is it lawful in two different ways. Have you ever thought about this? So the, when you think of the law, you think of the Ten Commandments probably, right? Yes? No? Anybody? Okay. So have you ever thought about the fact that the Ten Commandments are actually the guardrails? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't commit adultery. What's the path? What's the road? Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So is it lawful? Is not just a, how close can we get to the line? What can we get away with? Not just, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? No. Is it lawful for a man to abuse or manipulate or intimidate or threaten or belittle his wife? No, it's not. Like, you can ask the question of how we relate to one another in marriage. Is it lawful for a woman to berate, demean, condescend to her husband? No. What is lawful is for a husband to love his wife as himself and a wife to love her husband as herself. Love God, love neighbor, your closest neighbor. That's the summing up of the law. So we dare not be minimalist, but rather maximalist. Love God, love neighbor applies squarely in marriage. So what do we make of marriage? What do you make of marriage? So perhaps you're younger and maybe you haven't seen very many good examples. Do you know that there's a lot fewer people getting married these days? 
And there's probably lots of different reasons for that, but I'm sure one big reason is, man, I look around and just see a lot of mess. Do I really want to invite that mess? Not a lot of happy marriages in my world. You may start to think a bad marriage is inevitable. Or perhaps you can't wait to get married and you want to be as prepared as possible. What do you make of marriage? You're really like, God bless you. That's great. Or perhaps you've been married for a while and you used to fight for the health and welfare of your marriage, but you've kind of given up. Or you kind of just like path of least resistance. Or perhaps you're motivated and you want to fight for marriage, for the health of yours, for the future marriages that are in your life or the young marriages that you have influence over and you want all the help you can get to do it well. As Christians, we must make much of marriage. Marriage matters because the gospel matters, because the glory of God matters. So I want you to now think with me about the original and ultimate meaning of marriage. Okay? This is actually stuff that we share, Beth and I, with all the pre-marriage counseling couples that we have counseled over the years. So you know how in Ephesians 5, which is the most extended text on marriage in the New Testament, um, Paul talks about how husbands and wives is kind of a, they live out their roles in marriage, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, okay? And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, same passage that Jesus quoted here. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And then he makes this interesting interpretive comment. This mystery is profound to becoming one. And then he says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you know what that means? That means that marriage is invested with an incredible amount of glory. God did not make Adam and Eve this first marriage and then say, hey, you know, that's actually a pretty good way of explaining my love for my people. I'll have to use that later on. Like, note to self. No, it's the other way around. The love of God for his people. And ultimately, I mean, you hear that kind of language in the Old Testament, God treating his people as a bride. Think about even Hosea as an example. Sin as infidelity. The love of God for his people, full expression, final, ultimate expression in Jesus laying down his life for his church, his bride. That's the archetype. And every Christian marriage is to be a little picture of that grand, glorious reality. So Christian marriages, we've got to make much of them. We've got to make much of ours. We've got to take this so seriously because they're all intended to be a little reflection, an echo, an illustration, a tiny scale model, like a, like a living parable of the greatest love story ever told. Because obviously, if you keep reading in Genesis, everything went wrong really quickly. Adam and Eve bought the lie that God wasn't good enough. He's holding out on them. 
you know, a celestial killjoy. That plunged everything into brokenness. And, and we as human beings started worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. You know what that's like? That would be like a woman who falls in love with the engagement ring and tells her fiance to bug off because now she's got what she wants. That's crazy. The ring is just a token. Well, yeah, all the created things are just a token. So God did not just send us all to hell. He's the perfect husband, perfectly loving and merciful. After many centuries of different leaders, kings, and so forth, even King David, you know, none of them were good enough, strong enough, great enough to, give us, to bring us into happily ever after. So at the appointed time, the fullness of time, he sent Jesus, who condescended in an incredible way, pursued us when we were running the other way. God said in Jesus, he, through the incarnation, this, you, me, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, I will take on flesh and bone to make you mine again, to make you my beloved bride, to win your allegiance again, to be your loving, eternal husband so that you will live with me happily ever after. We enter into that new covenant by grace through faith in Jesus. We read it and Chris read it in Ephesians 2. We turn from our unfaithfulness and we trust in Jesus as our savior so if you know that, if you've experienced that, if you've turned from your sin, trusted in Christ, and you know his love, that's actually not only the picture that our marriages are intended to paint, it's also the power to paint that picture. So you see how much glory is invested. Your marriage, Christian brother or sister, is intended to tell a story not a lie about Jesus and the church, but tell a story. And we're all struggling with this to paint it well. I mean, we're all just like little two-year-olds with crayons, you know, and oftentimes we don't like what we see and we just want to go like this and tear it up and throw it in the trash. But his hand is on our hand and we can keep working at it and he can make it beautiful so there's so much glory invested in this institution, invested in your marriage, and if there's that much glory invested in it, you better believe that the evil one hates it. He hates marriage. He's got Christian marriages and your marriage in his crosshairs because the last thing he wants your marriage to be is beautiful, winsome, lasting parable and advertisement for the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. There's a reason why Ephesians 6 follows Ephesians 5. Ephesians 6 is about spiritual warfare. So Christian marriage has to be fought for. And how do you fight? By the power of the gospel. So Jesus' vows, Jesus' covenant faithfulness as the divine husband is what empowers ours. The covenant love and promises of Jesus are what we need to be able to keep our covenant love and promises. So in the gospel, you know what Jesus did? He took the vow. 
I, Jesus, take you sinners to be my bride, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward. And because I died for you, not even death can separate you from my love. We will live happily ever after. So, husbands, you keep your ears tuned to that good news. You keep your eyes fixed on your faithful Savior as you run the race that's set before you. When you do, you will know that you have all that you need to live and love, to give and serve the fullness of Jesus' sacrificial love. His servant-hearted leadership toward you will fill you up, strengthen you, so that it overflows on your wife. And your spiritual leadership will point to his spiritual leadership. You will not expect to be served. You will gladly serve. You will not be slow to forgive and quick to bring up faults and failures. You'll be forgiving and gracious because you know you've been forgiven an infinite debt. And there's a million more ways that it applies, right? And then wives as well, the same thing. So the vows of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, the covenantal love of Jesus is what enables us to live out that same covenantal faithfulness vertically and horizontally. So brothers and sisters, let's keep our ears tuned to Jesus' covenantal, new covenantal vows so that we will be empowered to keep ours to him and to our spouses, whether that's now or in the future, or even if it's never. Keep us faithful, keep us fighting. And may God so work in his church that the marriages in the body of Christ reflect the beauty of the greatest love story ever told. Let's pray. Oh God, we need your grace. Desperately, marriage is hard. Singleness is hard. Whether for a short time or the rest of our lives, whether having never been married or after suffering a painful divorce, we need your grace and we long for your church to show, not just tell, even though we've got to be clear on what your word teaches, but to show in a compelling, beautiful way the goodness of your design, the wisdom of your design for marriage. So please, would you help us Help us take marriage seriously. Help us not be flippant or dismissive or slowly, subtly tear at what you have created. Help us to protect and promote it rather than destroy it. For the glory of your name and the good of your people, both now and coming generations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.